Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, November the 9th. Voters in the riding of Brooks Medicine Hat have spoken and elected their new MLA, Premier Danielle Smith. We'll break down the results of the by-election and get some insight as to what the future holds for each party as we move towards a spring provincial election. We speak with Lisa Young, Professor of Political Science from the University of Calgary. The midterm elections also wrapped up south of the border on Tuesday. Who will control the House and Senate? Will the end result help to put an end to the divisiveness in the U.S.? We discuss with Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent with Global News. We all know bears go into hibernation over the winter, but what about our amphibian friends? We catch up with Leah Randall of the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo to learn about a unique version of hibernation practiced by frogs called brumination. And finally, it's Financial Literacy Month. We continue our weekly series on the topic with Bruce Celery, financial educator and CEO of Credit Canada. This time out, Bruce explains how to take your own personal financial photograph and why it's an important tool to help you reach your goals. Premier Danielle Smith now has a seat in the Alberta legislature after winning yesterday's Brooks Medicine Hat by-election. Joining us with all the details is Lisa Young, Professor of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. My pleasure. Can you break down the results for us number-wise? Sure. Um, So Danielle Smith uh, won and won clearly. Uh, She got just a hair under 55% of the vote. Um, And that's a little bit less than the party had won in 2019 when they got just over 60%. But it's it's certainly not a terrible showing. Um, the NDP came second with 27%, and the Alberta Party came third with uh, just under 17%. Lisa, biggest takeaway for you, uh, any surprises? Um, I don't think it was surprising. It, you know, Early in the night, it looked like it was going to be close, uh, but then uh, a couple of big advance polls came in and uh, uh, made it... it much clearer that uh, Smith uh, had won and and had won quite clearly. I I think there's an interesting pattern. Um, The NDP did very well within the city of Medicine Hat, um, and Smith did very well in the rural areas. And if we think about this as, you know, giving us a little hint maybe about uh, what the May 2023 election is going to look like, Mm -hmm. we know that Smith uh, very much wants to uh, run on a strategy of winning the rural areas. But that means that she also has to win the smaller cities like Medicine Hat and Lethbridge and Red Deer. And the NDP's strong showing uh, inside Medicine Hat do suggest that she might have a little bit of trouble there, that we're seeing even a, you know, a rural-urban kind of a, a breakdown even in those smaller cities. A little audio here. Premier Smith said last night that Albertans now have a choice between a united UCP and Rachel Notley's NDP, who, as Premier Smith said last night... That increasingly takes their orders from Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau at the federal level. Do you think that's uh, intended to be uh, just another sort of uh, piece to make things more divisive when it comes to the NDP, who we've seen a clear rise in popularity in the province again? Yeah, I mean, we've heard this line from Danielle Smith uh, all along. I think, you know, she she's emphasized it the night that she won the leadership. She's emphasized it at every opportunity that she can. And she's trying to create an impression that the NDP is a, a far-left party, that they're in cahoots with uh, the, the federal NDP and, and uh, Trudeau, who, of course, are very unpopular. But... 
I don't know that this is having a lot of impact. Um, you know, we saw the poll from Janet Brown come out last week, and it showed that Rachel Notley's uh, popularity is much higher than Danielle Smith's. Uh, I don't think that this this idea that she's taking her orders from uh, Jagmeet Singh, which of course aren't true, um, I don't think it's sticking at all. We did see well-known candidate in the region, Barry Morishita, who happens to also be the Alberta party leader, lose in last night's by-election. He came in third place. So what does the future hold for the Alberta party? Are we basically going to continue on with a two-party system here in our province? I think, you know, who knows what happens after 2023, but um, I I do think that the 2023 election is going to be very much a head-to-head battle between the UCP and the NDP. Um, I think for those people who aren't uh, aren't UCP supporters, um, even if they think that the Alberta party might be closer to their own preferences, they'll if they want to vote out the UCP, they'll see the NDP as being the vehicle for doing that. So I think we'll likely see some strategic voting that isn't likely to be helpful for the Alberta party. You know, we keep hearing that uh, the UC- from those within the UCP that the party is united. But with a win, and yes, she certainly well beat the other, you know, I think four other candidates. But it wasn't resounding in terms of numbers, those who came out and those who voted. So it, do you think the, uh, the UCP party truly is united or are, is there still some stuff going on in the background there? I think it would be fascinating to be inside Mm -hmm. uh, the UCP's caucus meetings for the next little while. Um, I I think that everyone in the party understands that the only way that they have any chance in the 2023 election is to live up to the United in their name. Um, the, The difficulty is going to be whether they can do that. And the one thing that holds them together is a desire to do well in the next election. Now, if they believe that Danielle Smith can sort of stick to her messaging and pivot to try to appeal to more mainstream Albertans, then I think they will be able to stay united behind her. But if it seems like she can't deliver uh, in the next election, if she keeps making statements about COVID and consulting experts, you know, who, who are outside the mainstream, then I think that we're going to see more and more um, unhappiness inside her caucus. One of the things to watch is who among the MLAs are are going to decide that they aren't going to run in the next election. Um, Are they going to just sit it out because they they don't think that they can win under her leadership? So, uh, you know, they say they're united. They may stay united, but it's, it's not a done deal yet, I think. Uh, Professor Young, what do you think we're going to see as far as that ramp up for campaigning when it comes to the NDP? Obviously, Rachel Notley has always been, you know, pretty good at uh, sticking it to uh, whoever's in charge. Uh, We we do appreciate what she's doing and has done because it's nice to have opposition, quite frankly, in our province. But what do you expect we can see a sort of strategy, if you will? Well, I I think what we've seen from Rachel Notley up to this point, and we're going to continue to see, is that 
she's positioning the NDP very much as a centrist party. It's a, a, a party that is, you know, where the mainstream of Albertans are. It's certainly not, you know, a radical socialist party uh, the the way that the UCP would like to paint it. Um, I, I think she's going to very much play on her own popularity, the sense that she was competent when she was premier. And it's really interesting to, to see how that, that sense has grown over time as uh, the UCP has governed. Um, but we're also going to see her spending an enormous amount of her time in Calgary because Calgary is going to be the battleground for the 2023 election. Whoever wins Calgary gets to form government. So I think, you know, Rachel Notley is going to be here much of the time. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Professor. Always appreciate chatting with you. My pleasure. Thanks. Lisa Young, Professor of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Who's going to who's going to take the helm at the Alberta Party? Uh, maybe Barry uh, Marchita can you know uh, rally the troops. I don't know who it is, but I do like the idea of having. I think more it's a shame choice. we don't have a third party. So you know, if you got some free time and some political <laughs> yeah. aspirations, yes, maybe so. I don't know. I mean, but then again, we've talked many times on this program, particularly over the past a few years. Who thinks that that would be a fun and fruitful career? The world of politics in these days, yeah. especially right? Yeah, absolutely. And in the United States, control of Congress still unclear this morning with a lot of the races still undecided in yesterday's midterm elections. One thing, though, is clear. The anticipated Republican red wave did not materialize with the party making far fewer gains than anticipated. Reggie Cicchini is our Washington correspondent for Global News and joins us now from Washington with the latest. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Thanks for being back with us. Where do things stand right now? So the counting is still underway across a number of states. Uh, Georgia, it could take weeks to try and figure out what's going on in their Senate race there. We just had an update from Maricopa County in Arizona uh, where there could potentially be hundreds of thousands of ballots that still need to be counted. That number will come out uh, later this morning, meaning it could be a week or more before we have an idea as to what's going on, at least in the Senate and the governor's race in Arizona. But as you mentioned, that red wave did not materialize. This is a lackluster performance for Republicans, and it raises questions as to whether Trumpism, which was still on this ballot, is as strong as it once was. So it raises those questions. Insiders within the Republican Party, do you think they're having strategy meetings at this point as far as the direction moving ahead? Because, yeah, I think outside looking in, uh, it's uh, not not a failure, but not exactly the success that they'd wanted. For sure, especially when it comes to Trump-backed candidates, many of whom were election deniers from 2020 and many of whom lost their races last night. The only Republican that came out with an incredibly strong win was Ron DeSantis in Florida, winning with more than a million votes, somebody who understands how the Republican Party uh, moves forward. He understands Republican Party politics and has a solid base that he's built up within Florida. And I think that there are going to be conversations now about whether or not Donald Trump's baggage and his inability to try and take this party in a new direction most time in office uh, is the way that the party wants to move forward. And while the GOP is likely going to gain some kind of control, likely in the House, not as big of control, Trump will try to take that as a win. But the Republican Party may say we need to rethink these things. And those could likely be conversations that started before yesterday. Does it seem like, you know, some of the extremism that was coming from some of the Republican candidates played a role, obviously, in the election results? 
I mean, it's very possible. Look at a state like Kentucky. It has a Democratic governor, but it has a pretty solid Republican core. But last night there was a ballot measure uh, to try and put into the state constitution uh, a line that would make abortion illegal. And enough Democrats came out in red Kentucky to overturn that ballot measure. So it is not going to be within the state's constitution. I think some of that extremism, as we've seen play out over the last couple of weeks, uh, has started to impact the Republicans uh, and, and Republican parties ability to kind of move forward with a plan that might kind of appeal to the broader masses outside of the central core. Democrats ran saying, look, democracy and rights are at risk. And while they may not walk away with huge gains in this election, they'll say, look, we staved off full elimination. That shows that Americans are on our side. So when it comes to uh, President Joe Biden and the Democrats uh, on the whole, uh, not, a, not a slam dunk or the, the most glowing of endorsements, but the go ahead to a certain extent, is, is this an opportunity for them to, to finally, you know, uh, kind of take a deep breath because we knew this date was coming. But for the next couple of years, they've, they've got some some confidence. Some confidence, but there's still uh, a bit of concern because, look, if Republicans do get some kind of majority in the House, they've already said that they intend to go after the administration's policies to try and slow down the agenda, which they feel is impacting America and Americans' lives. And they also intend to open up investigations, possibly into the president's family. So, I mean, there is still some concern here for what Republicans could do to block the White House from moving forward. If Democrats can keep the Senate, that allows them a little bit of wiggle room here. They could do things like put through judicial nominees. But, you know, this is still a roadblock to Joe Biden's agenda. It also potentially could be a roadblock to whatever Joe Biden intends to do with candidacy in 2024. Thanks so much for joining us, Reggie. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks, Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. The Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo back with us this month, this time to talk about how the cold weather impacts the animals at the zoo. Joining us to talk about it, Leah Randall, Senior Manager of Conservation Operations at the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo. Hi, Leah. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, You know what, maybe you can't answer this too terribly well because I know you're conservation specifically, but are there things that you have to do to kind of beef up some of the outdoor areas, especially for the animals? Um, So I work primarily on northern leopard frogs, so we have specific enclosures that we put them into in the winter. So we have aquatic tanks, then we are very temperature controlled just to ensure that they don't freeze. Yeah, that's that's you're doing your job, and they're not freezing. That's a good thing. So, for example, uh, you would bring them indoors. In the here's a, a crazy question: in the wild, what happens to frogs? I know we do have frogs uh, throughout the province out uh, here and there. Yes, we have. Um, there's different strategies that amphibians employ to help survive our chilly winters. So, for example, um, some species, such as wood frogs or boreal chorus frogs, they accumulate different chemicals in their body. So, things like uh, glucose, which is basically a sugar, and urea, which is a major component of urine, they can accumulate that in their bodies, and it helps prevent them from freezing. So, they can actually withstand temperatures below zero for long periods of time. But there's other species like toads and salamanders that can prevent themselves from freezing by burrowing down below the frost line. Well, and then, I wanted to ask you about that. So do they, yeah. do, do they still move around or do they truly hibernate some of these? Um, so they, they actually brewmate, which is slightly different. Um, and they are capable of some limited movement, but for the most part, they, they don't move around very much. Like Andy. Very simple, yeah. How long, and this is just like me too to ask this question, how long uh, do they go without eating when they're in this state? 
as soon as the temperatures start to cool down, then a lot of their food sources also disappear. So a lot of amphibians uh, rely on, you know, eating insects and those kind of things. So as soon as the insects start to disappear, they're typically not eating very much. And then um, for the whole course of winter, they, they don't eat at all. And so they just kind of live on their stored fats from their many delicious summer meals that they've had. And, and really it's because they're, um, their, their body temperature cools right down. So they're not very metabolically active during this time. You know, their heart rate slows, they're not moving around. So they're able to rely on these stored fat sources over the winter. And then, of course, once they emerge again in the spring and the insects become more abundant, then they'll start to eat again and kind of, you know, re- regain those fat stores that they've lost. Leah, do we know, has climate change impacted how frogs, amphibians are hibernating? Is, do we see any result of that? Well, we know that, you know, the seasons have kind of changed, that they've shifted a bit. You know, sometimes spring comes a little bit sooner. And so with some of the research that's been done, um, we've found that, you know, frogs are emerging earlier than they used to. Um, for example, there was a study that was in, done in Ontario, and they were finding that some species of frogs were actually, you know, emerging up to three weeks sooner than they had, you know, just 40 years ago. Speaking with Leah Randall, Senior Manager of Conservation Operations at the Wilder Institute, Calgary Zoo. And uh, Leah, what, what's interesting to me is what, all you've told me about, uh, thinking about the processes behind the scenes that you and the staff are doing, it is a different experience altogether if you go to the zoo in the winter months than the summer months, isn't it? You can see something, you might say, oh, I was at the zoo in August, but it will be a different experience now, won't it? Yeah, and a lot of, like, the animals that we have um, outdoors on zoo grounds, those are animals that are quite tolerant to our winter conditions, and sometimes they actually prefer them. So if you come during the summer, you know, you'll see, like, some of, you know, uh, some of the animals are kind of lethargic because of the heat, whereas if you come in the winter, you know, you like, you see the wolves, and they're, like, running around in their mm-hmm. enclosures, and they actually prefer these chillier temperatures to when it's quite hot during the summer. Yeah, sometimes it can be a lot more action fun for the kids to see. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Leah Randall, Senior Manager of Conservation Operations at the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo. And Andy, their year-round is always something going on at the Calgary Zoo. Absolutely. I was just looking at the, we had this uh, print-off that we said, oh yeah, what, what's coming up uh, that we can tell people about on the show? It starts next week, Zoo Lights, mm-hmm. part and parcel. Now, whether or not, because uh, I think that you you think for, you know, the education aspect and, and getting down there, the enjoyment Kids, their eyes light up at the zoo. Uh, but speaking of lighting up, this is the ultimate. Uh, I don't know how many millions of lights they have at zoo lights. I think it's a kajillion. Uh, literally. Is the actual number. Yeah, so it kicks off next week and goes right through till January. So you have that opportunity on the zoo's website. But November 18th, it's nightly, 5 to 9. And it is fantastic. Uh, twinkling lights, heated areas as well, by the way. Keep this in mind. Transparent globes. And they've got everything you need as far as like food and hot cocoa. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that. Beverage packages you can get as well. And they also have other, on top of the Zoo Lights experience itself, sort of some Zoo Lights special nights too. Oh, yes. So, I mean, there's an adults night out, only adults, no kids running around, which is kind of nice sometimes. You need a little break maybe. <laughs> uh, you know, holiday parties, there's Zoo Year's Eve coming up as well. So always a ton of great events going on at the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo. Aside from the amazing animals and the great yeah. conservation work that they do. It really is a destination. Yeah. And it's taken us years, but now we've got that absolute one of the best in North America. 100%. CalgaryZoo.com for all the details, by the way, and tickets.
All right, it's time to focus on our financial health as part of our discussion around financial literacy during this Financial Literacy Month. Bruce Celery is the CEO of Credit Canada. He's back with us to talk about our financial photograph. Morning, Bruce. Good morning. I love that you played in the I got your number Mm. because your financial photograph is going to deliver your number. Is it really? Well, then why don't you tell us what the heck a financial photograph (laughs) is? I feel like it's a selfie with money. I don't know. It is totally a selfie with money. You could call it a net worth statement and you might wonder why we don't just call it that. Here's the answer because photograph is more fun. (laughs) It's just so much more fun calling it a financial photograph. So I'm going to give you the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Basically what this is, is a statement of what you own minus what you owe. That's what it is. Your assets minus your liabilities. So you're going to create a little spreadsheet, do it on a napkin, however you do it. And you're going to list those two categories of things, you're going to subtotal what you own, and then you're going to subtract all of what you owe. So if you own your home, the approximate value would go in the top section, the assets. If you have a mortgage, it would go on what you owe in the bottom section. The power of this, the why to do this is you can't get where you want to go if you don't know where you are. And think about Google Maps, right? Like you wanna, I don't know, you wanna get to the airport. It matters whether you're in Tuscany or you know, in the Southwest. It matters where you are because it fundamentally offers the route that you're gonna take to get there. Your financial photograph is the key snapshot at a point in time of your overall financial picture. How often, how common do you think this is, Bruce, that people have done this? Is is this uncommon? (laughs) It's very uncommon. Okay. That's why I keep beating the drum here. People don't do this. Sometimes they'll write down their debts, um, but that's only if they feel like they're in trouble. It is very rare that people do this financial photograph, and it's why I'm so nuts about it. I have been doing it since 2001. That will not surprise you. I do it on New Year's Day every year, and even though I do it on a computer... I print out a copy and I put it in a folder. So I've got these dog-eared pages from the beginning of time. And it's really powerful to see that net worth grow over time. There's this phrase that we we overestimate what we can accomplish in a day and we underestimate what we can accomplish in a year. And I think that's really true when it comes to um, net worth because the little steps that we take over the course of days and weeks and months can really add up to something quite profound over time you are really full of it today and when i say <laughs> it i mean great sayings <laughs> yeah yeah i do love so that I, I do said, love that what you just said a minute ago though you can't get where you want to go if you don't know yeah. where you are i think it's so key because really i think most of us probably just stick our hand head in the sand because it, it can be very daunting It can be very, very daunting. And in today's context of rising inflation and rising interest rates, who wants to look at this stuff? It's not interesting. But when you put it all together, you will, most people, I don't know anybody who's ever done this and hasn't had an insight. Most people look at it and go, oh, I've never added all that up before. I had no idea. And if you're someone who's carrying consumer debt and it's on multiple cards, plus you've got a line of credit and you've got a car loan, you don't really have a sense for it. So when you put it all on that piece of paper, uh, you have a sense for it. And a lot of people will not like what they see Mm -hmm. on that piece of paper. But if I've described the why, the when, I'd say once a year, the who 
is everyone. Everyone should be doing this. Everyone should be doing it once a year. Where, where you do this, you could do it in the kitchen. You could do it in your garage. I don't care where you create the spreadsheet. That's immaterial. What's interesting to me, Bruce, is my wife and I have had conversations about this, and in that money is tight for everyone. We, we've got word now that our property taxes here in Calgary will be yeah. going up for everybody. I, I said to my wife, we got to look at what we can hack and slash, and I don't know where to start. So this could be not just the fact that the path moving ahead to, to sock some money away, but a, a, a path to see what we could shed in our lives. Yes, 100%. And what you're also pointing to is the connection between your financial photograph and your monthly cash flow. They are two very different things, but inextricably linked. So the financial photograph, the net worth is like the balance sheet. So it's a point in time. As soon as tomorrow happens, that number will change. That is different, but connected to your monthly cash flow, which is I've got a check coming in from my job. I got money going out to the mortgage and to the car payment and the credit card and all that stuff. If your monthly cash Cash flow is in surplus. You exceed uh, your income exceeds your expenses. That's going to help your financial photograph. You're going to save more money over time. If you are in a deficit, that is going to hurt your financial photograph, and you're going to have more liabilities, and that financial photograph is going to deteriorate over time. So those two worlds are connected. Oftentimes, people will say, "Where do I put my condo fee on my financial photograph?" It doesn't go there. It goes on your cash flow. It doesn't go on your financial photograph because it's an expense that you pay over the course of the month versus a debt that you have. Okay, so we've got two things. You've got your financial photograph, which obviously is super key to just give you, like, like you say, that snapshot of where you're at. So is that... Should we have both the financial photograph and the budget? Yes. Should we all be doing that on the regular? Oh my God, I totally scored an invite to come join you next week because you know what we can do next week? <laughs> I'm so excited already. We'll do sustainable spending. We'll talk about sustainable spending because okay. I am not a fan of budgeting. I don't love it. I think it, it lives in a world of scarcity and I don't think it's sustainable. Sustainable spending has the ABC method, analyze, brainstorm, change. And then we could um, bring those two together. And that, Andrew, is when you start making some really tough, calls about where you were spending your money and have some awareness about, geez, I didn't know I was spending that much on that thing. And here are some changes that I could make. So what do we, what do you say? Should we do that next time? Yeah. Well, okay. You can come back. There's two things. Yeah. I mean, I don't need 15 streaming services and yeah, Bruce did just invite himself on. He's <laughs> yeah. that house guest. He, he shows like up to the party without an invite. Uh, <laughs> but I want to ask you about uh -huh. this, Bruce, because before we let you go and we will chat with you next week, uh, Credit Canada, Tell us uh, briefly what pe people can expect from Credit Canada and what services you offer. So we are the oldest nonprofit credit counseling agency in the country, started in 1966. We answer thousands of calls a year. And so people who pick up the phone and call us are people who can't sleep at night. They may have got collection calls. They may be someone who's just looking at that credit card debt and thinking, I can't figure out a way to get rid of that debt. So they pick up the phone. We offer them lots of different options, lots of ideas. But the one in particular that's really compelling that I wish every Canadian knew about is something called a debt consolidation program, which is when we negotiate on your behalf with your lenders to lower your interest rates. You still pay back your debt in full, but you do that through us in a structured way with lower rates, it does affect your credit score. There's no dream world in which it isn't going to affect you, but it means that you're not dealing with those 40, 50% interest mm. rates on high interest loans. Um, and you've got some support. You've got a counselor who's going to cheer you on uh, all the way along. So we do these free debt assessments every single day for many, many people. Just 
pick up the phone and call and we can uh, take you through what your options are. I have a good friend who is doing that right now and it has changed her life. So it really is, instead of declaring bankruptcy, instead of just sticking your head in the sand, do it. Okay, so Bruce will send people to creditcanada.com and also to your website, moolala.ca. And we'll talk to you next week, obviously, because you invited yourself back. Thanks for joining us. Just if you'd like to have me. Uh, We always, we could have you every day. You're just that great. Thanks, Bruce. Have a wonderful day. See you next week. Bruce Celery, CEO of Credit Canada.